Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Hello, hello, and welcome back to our podcast. My guest today is French-Canadian Maggie Hull. Maggie is a certified master hypnotist and member of the National Guild of Hypnotists. She is certified also as an energy medicine practitioner who helps people with ADHD get things done. After overcoming her own set of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder with hypnosis and self-hypnosis, she not only found relief from her past experiences, but also from the blocks that were causing her own ADHD to be mismanaged. Maggie has trained with many experts in the field of trauma and inherited family trauma. She bases her approach of healing the symptoms of ADHD on proven neuroscience methodology. While working with her one-on-one hypnosis clients, she was able to not only resolve her clients' main issues by restoring their ability to focus and follow through, but also to help them create a life they love and thrive in. Maggie has a passion for understanding the human perception of being and living and creating new connections. She lives her life with curiosity and believes that everyone has a right to healing, diagnosed or not, by addressing the root of the real underlying issues and helping her clients feel in charge of their lives. Maggie and I talked about not only her childhood, but also her accident paradigm. Maggie and I talked about her childhood, how it was growing up with five siblings in a family where patriarchy was strong, and her mother dealt with her own trauma, her own issues. She also shared about her paragliding accident and how being in bed for two months slowed her down and had her realize what really matters. Maggie also shared about what she does for a living as a hypnotherapist and how she affects people with ADHD behaviors with her work. I'm so excited to welcome my guest, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me, Roman. It's my pleasure. Um, Anytime I get to talk to what I call a fellow activist, I hate to use the word activist, but really you're someone also who stands for people, uh, people's mental health, who is committed to sharing your story and what you've learned, your experiences, so that people can live more productive lives and get, as they say, get things done, right? Yes, absolutely. That's what I do on a daily basis. (laughs) I love it. And so I always start, not always, but often start out with this question. To you, what is ADHD? To me and how I live it um, and how I see a lot of people struggling with it is this great analogy that I had was, um, you know, if you have a computer and you have 10 tabs open, your computer is going to have all the information, but it's going to be really more difficult for the computer to process all those tabs, but it can see all the information is there and you have all of this, but then the actual process of it is slower of the computer. And when you compare it to maybe someone that is more neurotypical would be if they have only one tab open, it can really, the computer is super fast. and can work with that one tab. And, uh, 
but they only they kind of really can focus on that one type going on. So um, a lot of people with ADHD, how they live that that seems to me they live that we live our life is we always have we super aware of everything going on and we have all this information and we extreme and more even empathic or more sensitive. So we have all this information all the time, but then we overwhelm with all this information that we're getting from everywhere and everything around us. And sometimes it, it seems a bit harder to actually um, focus that way to the things that we really want to do because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that multitasking, right? It's like the jack of all trades, but the master of none kind of uh, metaphor, right? It's like too many, too many tabs open but really it's just too many tabs open and nothing gets done. Right. So what's, what's interesting here is that you described a bit more of a, I would say an outcome perhaps of a symptom, right? If the symptom is lack of focus or inattentive, like spread too thin, then the outcome is too many tabs open, nothing gets done. Right. So let me ask you one more time because that's what I'm doing is very important because it happens to me all the time is that we're, we're not really tuned into what it is. Like when I say to people, what is it? Right. So not a symptom, not a result, but what would you say is the thing called ADHD in your mind? The thing is the definition of it is different for different people. And it, it show up in different way in different people's life. And it also come from sometime from early times, but also like, I don't know if you read um, uh, The Body Keeps Their Score, where he conducted mm -hmm. a study where um, he found that people from Vietnam, that when he come back from Vietnam from the war, they actually have a same brain scan than a child that had ADHD. So he, that person had ADHD, but really that, that kind of came when he was at an, an, an adulthood and not really sure if it started in childhood or later in life, but at the end of the day, they both have symptoms or signs of it. So really, um, what is ADHD? I think it's, it seems a little complex to me when, when you want to explain that, because we want to really focus on the meaning of it. And I think a lot of people attach the, ident the identity to it. And what's important is if you have sign and symptoms, how can you do to relieve those sign and symptoms and really get out of the either diagnostic or, or the identity of it? Because if you stay stuck in that, then you can't really try to find, improve your life or yourself because you think that's who you are. And, I, and when I work with people is what's important is, okay, well, if that's your reality, so what can you do about it? What symptoms are you getting and why are you getting those symptoms? And yeah. really, really get more to the root of what's going on instead of focusing on really ATG itself and having that, that diagnostic. It's, and it appears, um, I think as a, like me as a woman and as other girls, um, it, they, it, we a bit better at keeping it, keeping it inside. <laughs> so for women, a lot, like we internalize our anger and our pain more than um men would because it's just naturally and you know just when you look at history girls we 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 were told to not cry or to not have anger to repress all that and so we learned those behaviors from a long time ago so 
um, comparatively to sometimes for men, you know, you have to have anger to have authority and you have to be strong and blunt and, but they can't show if they actually feel it, feeling sadness or cry. So, um, and so, and then for me, how it shows up ADHD, it was really more the inattentive, like a lot in, in the classroom, um, really a lot of daydreaming. Um, I, <laughs> I will sit there and not listen to a word of what someone said um, every single class, but I would be really good at school because then I will go home and go over all the materials. So if someone had to give me a diagnostic of what ADHD is, even for myself, because I was doing good at school, that would be dismissed really because a lot of diagnostic are given to people that really struggle sometimes. And, and then, and it is other part of a hyperactivity that can come differently in a different part. Um, and we did talk a little bit about that earlier another day and which our activity can be either, you know, you struggling to stay set and do nothing in class and be more um, impulsive with your word and action but also, and sometimes it's the, the doing of never stopping to do anything um, and, and just having always something on the go and never taking the time to actually rest and sit down and have self-care. And the hyperactivity comes in different ways um, because either you are impulsive or have emotions that go switch a lot, or you also have with that ways that are more hidden, which is, well, if I have five minutes free, then I'm taking on taking on this new project, and so it's just going, 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 going. Like you said, the the jack of all trades, but never really yeah. good at anything. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's like the energizer bunny, right? It just keeps going. Now you've said so many great things. I'm going to try to unpack a few of them before we dive into uh, your own personal story around ADHD. But uh, you mentioned the body keeps the score. And and yes, um, I had the privilege to interview Bessel uh, Manderkalk and he totally agrees. And what you mentioned, exactly that example, that um, a lot of kids, and I will say the majority of the kids, uh, now after seven years of research, it is clear to me that the majority of the kids diagnosed with ADHD actually have a form of childhood PTSD, childhood trauma, because it matches with the way they their bodies react to hypervigilance, even the hyperactivity, which is really the body trying to release energy and you got to keep moving, right? It's uncomfortable to stand still because there's so much energy that needs to be expressed. So I totally agree with that. And I think, yes, for girls, it's different. And they used to call the girls with inattentiveness space cadets, right? Because they would just sort of be like, like you said, look into space, daydream, right? It's a different way to process uh, trauma or events in your life that, that have stressed out the nervous system of, of a young girl, right? So I totally agree with you there as well. Um, we see this all the time. And I just want to read something. This is not just for you, also for our listeners. But we've been working on um, what's called the ADHD uh, 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 diagnosis survival guide, and it's going to come out, uh, right before Christmas. It's a, like a 30 page PDF, almost like a 
an early version of the book that we're, we're writing. And um, we asked two questions, obviously ourselves, but two experts. Uh, one is what is ADHD? And the other one is what causes it? So I'm just going to read you. It's very interesting. So according to the experts, and this is the American Psychiatric Association, the CDC and National Institute of Health. So what is ADHD? The, the APA says ADHD is one of the most common mental disorders affecting 8.4% of American children. The CDC says ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood. The NIH says ADHD is a neurobehavioral disorder that affects three to 5% of all American children. So they're all saying something slightly different and even the percentages are different. A little confusing, right? But that's what they say. But then when we ask, what's the cause of ADHD? The APA says, scientists have not yet identified the specific cause of ADHD. The CDC says the causes and risk factors for ADHD are unknown. It's a strong word. NIH says, finally, after years of clinical research and experience with ADHD, our knowledge about the cause or causes of ADHD, and here's my favorite, remains largely speculative. Kind of interesting, the top experts, right, that tell us different versions of what it is, at the same time also say, we don't really know what causes it. And so my thinking is always like, okay, why aren't we investing more time and energy into listening to experts like Bessel van der Kolk or Gabor Mate, Stephen Porges, people who all say, it's not a disorder. It's something that happens to the child's nervous system at an early age. It's how we react, right? And then the, the, the brain gets shaped that way and then they behave a certain way. So the most important question is, why do they behave that way, right? I just wanted to make that point because we were leading there. Um, is this a good moment to dive in? I'd love to hear your personal story of how ADHD <laughs> arrived in your life, like your experience from uh, an early age, if you would take us back there, would love to hear that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really interesting, I think, because I've, I, I'm a hypnotherapist, so I have worked with a lot of people that we went really deep and far into, uh, into when they were really little. And so I have maybe a really greater awareness sometime of how it started for me and um in in that case which i want to go back all the way to what i believe it started when i even when i was in the womb right because it's not to be dismissed that when we are conceived um we are made of the cells of our parents of a mother and father and depending on the situation at the moment it shapes us so what I do know um, from from my mother is when I was in the womb, she was really, really stressed because they were building a house. Um, she already had two other kids before me and they were building a house and she had to feed all the men working at the house. So she was really, really stressed and she was having, having a lot of headache. Um, she was tired. She was kind of sick. So she was not doing very well when she was pregnant with me. And then, um, and so when I was born, right away, I was really, I was insecure a lot. So I was already having these behaviors that she could never get me down. I had always to be there doing something, being close to people. I was really 
um, insecure that way. And she didn't know what to do because then I was, she could never put me down because then I would like be super attentive of what was going on. Um, and so what my believe my, what I believe started probably there because my mom was already um, having her own symptoms and I, and I don't know the percentage, but most likely when parents have this stress and our parents mostly have also ADHD when we have ADHD, because we, 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 when we little a child, we become mirror of our surrounding because that's how we survive. And, and then that way, if my mom was an attentive, if my, she was present, but not mentally present, emotionally present, then I found ways to have attention so I can uh, fulfill my needs or find ways to be hypervigilant with her because if mom is not doing well, then I'm not doing well because I'm dependent on mom. And so there's a lot where we become like super aware and have really um, we become emotionally like empath. Um, that's the word that's used a lot when I talk with people with ADHD, like you're feeling empath because I feel emotion of everyone, but also because that's how they can live and survive. And so when you start doing that, like, you know, you're aware of your mom behavior and how she feel all the time. So you can feel her needs because if you feel her needs, then she can feel your need. And it's just in the, mm. how we work as little children. So usually it started really early. Yeah. Even though, yeah. No, that's that's beautiful. And and Gabor Mate was uh, telling me during the interview with him, which was so just such a pleasure to be with him, such an intimate setting, you know, on a Zoom call. And he said that, yeah, prenatal trauma is huge. Like the stuff that happens in the womb is so underestimated to this day, you know, that if we really were aware of the impacts, we would change the way we deliver babies. Everything around it would change, not just in the medical field in the ho at the hospital, but also for parents to treat those nine months like, like you're in the porcelain shop. Like, you, you know, it, this is the most like sensitive period of an, of a child's early life, right? It is the most, it's when the nervous system is literally just forming. It's the most sensitive it's ever going to be. And yet we kind of treat it like, yeah, 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 whatever. Got to go to work you know, running up the stairs, some, some women fall down the stairs, you know, there's been some crazy accidents happening. Right. And I think the more we could avoid that. So I just wanted to say that to, to that point, but also, uh, so tell me, was your, your mother was also said to have, uh, ADHD. Does it, did it come from a lineage there in the family? Mm -hmm. So when I, when I, when I was growing up, um, actually that was something that we avoid to talk about at all costs. It's like, if you were taking Ritalin, you were like one of those kids, right? So um, it was like not something that we was accepted when I was growing up. It took way later in my life, um, actually when my sister had her, her, her children, that and her, her four children has ADHD and autistic. So she's right in the middle of that and she's doing an amazing job handling all four, that. Four children? Four children yeah. with ADHD? Yeah. <laughs> My I mean, sister has. I should yeah. say differently. I shouldn't say four children with ADHD, but she has four children that were diagnosed with ADHD. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. And two of yeah, and two of them are also being diagnosed with autistic, like a one of a girl and a, a boy are so they have totally different behavior too. So and then so she got the diagnostic and and then 
And then because of that, then my mom started accepting that maybe she has it. And then because she didn't want to, because we didn't grow up that way either. And then so, but, and then so right now, like we will talk about it like openly because my sister did, did that work. And even for me, like to, to, to realize that's what was happening in my life. It took way later in my life. And then, so my mom has really kind of like really more extreme ADHD, but she also have a lot of things going on. So that's not helping uh, the symptoms of ADHD for her really being inattentive and not really um, having a lot of stress mm -hmm. and anxiety. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, sorry to interrupt, but your mom, so this is a, a classic uh, example where, I would say, okay, so your mom thinks or was diagnosed, was she diagnosed officially or no? no I don't think so. Okay. So let's say she says self-diagnosed, right? She's an adult. She's seen what people call, say, you know, name, label as ADHD. She has ADHD, thinks she has ADHD. The question would be to say, you know, those are the behaviors, right? ADHD behaviors, because uh, it's an observed behavior kind of disorder. There's no medical test for it. So, um, what, you know, it's like, why does she behave that way? So what uh, in her life, in her past, was a trauma that would had her start behaving that way? If you'd like to share. Mm. And that part, um, I don't know exactly where it started for her. Um, and that's still something I'm not even sure if she is aware of accepting of that. So um, and the thing is with trauma, you know, sometimes we deny and most we deny what happened and we forget because that's our way we, we protect ourselves. But what I do know is when she was seven years old, uh, she had her sister and her parents were working really hard, didn't have a lot of money. So she feel like she was taking care of her sister at age of seven. And so that's really young to be yeah. feeling like you have all the responsibility to do that and and the father for a moment for years he was drinking a lot so she had to be and she was a, the second of her, her family of three but then her older brother was never there and never helping so she was at seven like the little helper of moms so it's when you look at it and it's like all that's all. a lot. I mean, that's yeah, a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if, and, and I'd love to, I'll read you another statement from, from this, uh, um, survival guide we're working on because it's very relevant, right? There's a, a 1990s, there was a study called the ACE study, ACE, um, that the CDC and, uh, Kaiser permanented it. And this was to see if these, uh, it was short for adverse childhood experiences, right? These kind of traumatic events in a childhood, how they would affect mental disorders. And this is what the National Institute of Health arrived at. They said children with ADHD have higher ACE exposure compared with children without ADHD. And then they said there was a significant association between ACE score and ADHD. So there it is, right? The things that happened to your mother uh, during her childhood to be a, become a parent, right, at seven, and then to have an alcoholic father around her, that sort of, you know, living on eggshells, right? Like not knowing when he was going to explode or where there was going to be verbal abuse or whatever, that's traumatic, very traumatic. So yeah, I would say those are probably the main ones, you know, that 
started to form like her behaviors right at an early age. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and I don't know if you're familiar too with the work of Mark Willen in the Riddard family trauma, which I, it, which is a lot about that too. Like, you know, how, you know, we, how it can comes from further and even further because basically her mom probably also went through something. And so that felt that was transferred to her. And once it's transferred to her, then transferred to me as a, a, a child. So some things that I hold, if I'm not doing the work, then I hold uh, behavior and patterns and things that come from all the way from like my grandmother and my grand grandmother. Yeah. So it's, it's far, it's really far. <laughs> and it goes way further back, right? I mean, it's generations of, gen and as, as we go further back, not consistently, but most likely further back, even stronger, more powerful traumas, like there was war and really extreme atrocities happening back then. Middle ages, you go really far back, right? Uh, with those relatives. So uh, I think you said something really great. You said that, uh, forgive me, I don't know how you said it, but it was something like, you know, like if your mom doesn't do the work, you have to do the work, right? Somebody has to draw the line in the sand. And it sounds like um, just by what, what, you're, what you do for a living and who you are, this open-minded and this uh, interested to, to dive deep, you are drawing a line in the sand for your family, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, lo lots of work. Um, and it's a, it seems a big responsibility because I think it, it takes... Um, about three generations, they say, to heal from trauma. So, so then if it comes to me, because my mom didn't heal trauma, but me by healing me, then I'm healing my mother. Because mm -hmm. the, the ways that I'm supporting her, like, and even then sometime in, when we have parents that are in a victimization or uh, some of the behavior and the thoughts that they have, when we actually also hold it in ourselves, we amplify those within them because we feed each other so when you when anyone would do the work for yourself then you're doing the work for your mother and for anyone that doesn't have children it's the same you can't expect your children to feel a, a way that you're not feeling because if the the children um go into specialists and try to do the work because i do get sometimes parents that want to work with me the one they try to work with me but what happened is at the end of the day if the, the child do the work at home, then um, then he's going to go back home and he's going to go back to wanting to be understanding mom and feeling like mom or, or dad so they can be part of a family system. So they be included and not excluded by being a bit different. Because when you're so young, you don't really um, understand. Like you're just trying to belong and to be part of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love the work you do, because ultimately w when parents just sort of ship off their kids to the psychiatrist or psychologist and they say, hey, you go get fixed because you're the problem and nothing shifts at home and the child, the, the child is starting to make some progress and comes home, but there's no progress at home. That's going to be counterproductive, right? Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Now take me back to, so you were a young woman, you were a girl and you were, um, said to have ADHD diagnosed no, or undiagnosed. Undiagnosed. Yeah. Got it. And what had you say or believe or your parents say or think that you had ADHD? 
Um, and it wasn't ever coming from my parents. It was, again, my sister being, my sister as her first child when she was, um, I think she was 18. So she was really young. So she's, she, um, she started very young to be part of this uh, adulthood and doing the work and seeing specialists and all that. So uh, because of what my sister was doing, like I had this awareness. And how old um, were you? How old were you? How old am I now? When you, when you, no, how old were you when you first uh, found out from your sister or when you first talked about ADHD? Oh, um, even later, I think what really happened for me is when I, I realized that <laughs> when the symptoms start like reducing, that's when I accepted that I had ADHD. And so that's been like quite recently. And I'm like even wanting to accept that because mm -hmm. I've, I've just, I personally, um, like even for any other disease, like I'm like, no, like I always want to get to the root of like, how can I feel better? Um, but lately with the work I've been doing, I found that um, people res not resonate, but they, that's how they've, they find me in because I've experienced kind of a little bit of the before how uh, the ADG in its worst state and I've done the work um, and it's, it's still have appear, but I've kind of like understand it better now than, then I've attracted people that kind of want now to work with me in a way and, and I understand them. And because of that, I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm yes. Okay. I, and it's self-diagnosed again. Um, but, <laughs> um, I, my sister has it, my mom has it. So I'm like, it doesn't change anything for me to get the diagnostic or not. And yeah, but yeah. So that's been like actually pretty recent that I accepted that. Um, mm, and be it. like really forward to help people that way. But I will say my sister, she has been known that for maybe about 10 years. So mm -hmm. that she was like, diagnosed. Yeah. And then there are children too, because they were diagnosed and she got a diagnostic. That's actually what happened. And how does she feel? I mean, or when you're around them, how does she treat this? Uh, does she see it as her children have a problem? There's a brain disorder they need to be fixed or how, what's her approach to this? Mm. And it, it, you know, what's amazing is because we have different methods and we learn from each other that way, because she, or, or four, four kids are on medication. Mm. Um, but then she have a system. She made a system for them. And if they're not, if our children don't follow the system, then they feel a little bit out of order. They need to have this calendar that she has. And she, I mean, it's a full-time job. Don't get me wrong. Like she, oh, yeah. she with four kids with ADHD, she's like doing work all the time. And two that are also autistic. So on the spectrum, so it's even like she has to be doing a lot of work with them all the time with that. Um, so mm -hmm. in, and she was on medication and she's, she, she, I think she just got off or trying to get off and with that, but which in my approach, I'm, I'm more about, okay, so how can we heal that differently without medication? What, because I've experienced, I never took medication for it, but I'm also like, you know, I think there are ways that we can reduce the symptoms and the signs because that's what I experienced yeah. without having to take medication and without feeling sometimes that we, we, we are needed to, to do that. But what, what she beautifully said is like, you know, at, at, for some people to be able to start doing the work, they have to start a medication to just get sometime this kind of 
wherever they have to be before they can do the work. And I can see that to understand. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I actually meet both kind of people that have I've met people that like, once they get the medication, they're like, oh, okay, now I can think about getting out of the medication because they were not even able to function at all without it. And they needed a medication to, to start doing the step to get out of it. And then yeah. you also have people that get on medication and then they're like, um, how come nothing's changed? How come I'm still feeling frustrated? How come I'm still feeling anxious? How come now I take medication and okay, I can focus, but now I'm focusing on Netflix for 12 hours a day. So, <laughs> so well, thinking that it's a problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a good point. Um, and I've talked about this before, you know, if we look at the, uh, original intention of medication, the med medication was really there for, let's say a soldier was fighting on the, you know, battlefront, right. And he got shot and that hurts and there's bleeding, right? So medication came in to take away the pain and then to, you know, uh, uh, take care of the wound, right? You couldn't have just said like, oh, here's a Band-Aid, go ahead and move on, you know? Medication had its place, but it never was meant to be long lasting, you know, cause it would be the same thing, what we're doing to our kids with ADHD medication. What most, I, I'll take it back. What a lot of parents are doing, I don't know the numbers, the statistics, but I don't think there are any. What, what a lot of parents are doing is they're treating it as like a lifelong, that's how they're going to function, right? In life. So keep giving them the medication. But medication actually is not something, you know, imagine somebody gets shot on the battlefront and you give them painkillers for three days. Now they're better. And you say, well, just keep taking the painkillers because who knows, you'll, you'll feel better, right? You feel better? Yes. Okay. Well then keep taking it. Why wouldn't you want to feel better? Right? So it's kind of the same thing with uh, children that are supposed to have this disorder called ADHD, because we, we, we realize when we give them medication, somehow they can suppress emotionally the trauma, right? And they can focus on schoolwork. But then when we stop medication, they're back, you know, with dealing with the traumas and those behaviors. So we give it again versus actually addressing the deeper wound, right? Not a Band-Aid, but actually really go into the wound and stop the bleeding, if I want to use that metaphor. And I think that's great that your sister, because she said it, she said, well, uh, they need medication now so, you know, they can get stuff done. And it sounds like eventually, including herself, trying to get off of it, right? So I think they're on their own right track, right? That's beautiful. Yeah. And it's hard work. Yeah. I mean, to have four children that are dealing with, or she's dealing with their behavior like that. I only have uh, two and one of them uh, has the behaviors or used to have more of the behaviors. It's a lot of work. It's stressful. You know, I hope she has support. Is she in a, in a healthy relationship and has support or where is she at? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she, she had someone that she could get support from for a while, but I think she's at this point where, um, I, I, I'm, I'm giving all my, I'm amazed by what she does because my family isn't back in Quebec and I'm British Columbia in Canada right now. So, um, and we are six kids in my family and my wow. sister is the one also trying to help my parents with everything somehow. I don't know what happened with my for the siblings <laughs> well, it's just like she's really there and she's a caretaker <laughs> wow that's a that's a lot right if you're 
I have, I had the pleasure during the early years of this, right? To have a wife, a supportive wife who's aligned with, with me, right? But to do this on your own with four children, right? Even just forget ADHD, just having four children on your own and having to survive and supporting your parents. Here's what I'm going to say. There's some strong women in your family and they've learned it from probably your mother, right? To have to push through and have to keep going. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, women are so resilient and so good at surviving, really. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And, um, and, and, you know, I think in my family, because because of I, we grew up in a farm, my mother grew up in a farm, we grew up, in, I grew up in a farm. We were not allowed to work on the farm as women, but um, we it's kind of just to survive. You had to have a strong head. You have you had to have opinions and we had, it was really um, patriarchal and more, more masculine that way. So we do have to, you know, and in the masculine way, just more really um, the doing of the things. So we like doing and get things done, um, which in some ways, sometimes I, I have to admit, like I've, I've learned to be in touch more with the feminine and balance that because I had to to survive even my mother and my sister and I and I have four brothers but we're like always in our in our masculine so much that you know now the past few years when I I've started um doing the healing work I had to rebalance this feminine which is like you know the nurturing the self-care the all this and if it's not balanced then there is a disproportion in it it's affect our life absolutely absolutely you brought up a whole nother topic that you and i could spend a two-hour episode on <laughs> on the masculine and the feminine and also not just that in relationships but also the effect it has in this case on young girls when they're growing up in a family and uh we have found many studies and talked to many experts that truly believe that that also has to do with ADHD, that when, when girls grow up in a, in a household where the women are m mostly in the masculine and the men, men are in the feminine, which, which just means they're just not present and emotionally available, then girls will go into these inner spaces that could then be seen as ADHD or not being present or, you know, just not being there in their being, right? Um, and that's, again, nothing wrong with that. The masculine feminine dance is something I think we all struggle with and it's a magical but mysterious uh, energetic force we're trying to figure out, you know? Um, but it sounds like that uh, in your family, it was really about watching your role model, your mother being in the masculine and having to survive and, and push through and go, 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 do, do, do. Mm -hmm. Yes, a lot of that. And I mean, imagine six kids. Wow. <laughs> uh, she had six kids. So she had to be there and and she had them in nine years apart. So we all about uh, like nine years apart, one of each other, um, like from my youngest to the oldest. So um, it's and I'm the third children. So right in the middle. And so, you know, we can just imagine. <laughs> that must wow. Yeah. No, with the, the strength it takes, you know, the courage, the unwavering commitment to your children, right? There's, there's definitely a, a committed human being there. We're never blaming our parents for the trauma. We're just saying there's some responsibility our parents could take for it, but it's not a blame. It's not, it's your fault. You're a bad human being, right? It's none of that. Cause damn what it took to raise 
Six kids, yeah, during that time. Amazing. Uh, take us a little forward here. You had an accident in your life, and I just want to hear about that and share that, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about the effect of that on just your body, your mind, your brain, behavior, and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in 2017, I had a paragliding accident. I, a paragliding, that's what I, yeah, I, that's what I do for fun. Wow. <laughs> so I learned paragliding in 2016 and, and I was pretty new at it, um, actually when, when that accident happened and going back there, uh, when I think back at that is what really, what really, I, I loved it, everything about it, I, the excitement, you know, the needed of the dopamine every time I run off a mountain. There was a fear, there was excitement, there was all the emotions, but um, in what we just talked about a bit of that, like that, that go, 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 is I actually never also could stop. I, every, every moment that I had free, I will um, do that. Um, I will spend all my time doing that. And if I wasn't doing it, I felt like I was, falling behind of whatever competition in my mind I was doing like I had to be better or wanted to be the best or and it's a really male-dominated sport and so it's like I felt like I had to prove myself even more and you know that's all mental dialogue right because all I was experiencing was just no one was putting pressure on me it was me putting pressure on myself on that because mm. I want to and I grew up that way we just talk about it so and I was like, so I was doing all the things I wanted to be good at it right away. And what happened is parkouring is just one of the sport and it's magical. It's beautiful, but my gosh, it's like you dealing with mother nature. So it's like to think, to think that you can in any way um, do figure out mother nature all the time. It, it's just not like, it's so strong. It's powerful. It's such a, yeah. And I have so much respect. Um, but yeah, so then what happened is a year within the sport, you know, I was trying to do it more. I think I was pushing, I got into the intermediate stage, which I was like, not quite a beginner and I was not advanced, but I was like, like with the intermediate syndrome, right. Thinking that I was better than what I actually was because I wanted to be better. And I was a little bit competitive and I wanted to be kind of in some way needed like kind of validation that I was seeking then or be part of a community. And if I wasn't doing it and I wasn't part of a community and at that time it was important to me. Um, but also I wasn't really in touch with how I was feeling most of the time when I was going paragliding or because I was so much in my head. And even though I love what I was doing now, thinking back and see how much I was disconnected of like how I actually in my heart feeling, um, most of the time in, in my, in my body. And so, um, and one day, yeah, I, I, I took off and I flew for an hour. It was beautiful. I was in France then. And then I, I landed the first time and I was like, wow, it was amazing. It was like around all the cat, cat like a, a old church. It was just beautiful. And, and I do that on my own. It's not a tandem. Like I do that on my own, but, and then I, I went back up to the launching site and people were still flying. And I was like, I hadn't eaten all day and I hadn't like, I, I was tired and exhausted and thirsty and I knew I should have stopped and go and eat. And if I was just listening for a minute, I would actually be like, be satisfied with what I just did. And then at that moment, I was like, people were still flying. And I'm like, oh, mentally, I was like, 
I need to fly. I need to be out there and do the things because I can't stop. And I was really doing all the things all the time. And then so I went and flew again for another hour and it was so beautiful. But then when it hit and I was like, like I was a moment and while I was flying is that my, my blood pressure went down because I hadn't eaten all day. And then I was not present in my brain anymore. And I was just wanting to go land. I just needed to go eat. But then it was, you know, and then you're flying, right? I'm like, can't press the pause button. I can't just stop in the middle. Like I need to go land. And then at that moment, what I, what happened is I did a maneuver, like I stalled the wing. And so I fell 30 feet or 10 meter. And, and then, I mean, <laughs> and then I, at that time I broke my back by doing that. Um, and really changed everything in my life. And this was four years, four years ago, right? And so from, from the moment that you fell, right? Obviously we know there's, whenever there's an injury, right? There's the pain, there's the recovery. Take us a little bit through mentally um, how you felt during that time, because as a go, 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 got to get stuff done. Now life or mother earth really said like, no, you're going to sit still for a while. What yeah. was that like? And, you know, it's such a blessing. It's so hard. He, you know, it was so hard because I had like a surgery in my back. They made, they, they did two surgery and they put a fusion and my body wasn't the same anymore. My body couldn't, I couldn't do the things. I would like go climb, like run all the time, climb mountains and always do things and do, do, do. And then the moment that that happened is like, oh, my body, like it can't even, I had to go to bed at 8 p.m. because I just couldn't physically, as I was recovering, my body couldn't physically, like it's just, it had to rest and recover. And that was really challenging because my mind hadn't changed. My body had changed. I had to listen. I, I was like, at that time I had the nervous systems, um, um, my nerves got bruised a little bit. So I was having issues with um, my pelvic floor. It was, uh, it was a paralyzed in. Um, and there, so I found myself that I had my mind, what I want, who, who I wanted to be then, like it wasn't really working with the new body. I just, that, that I had to rediscover in some ways, because I was used to my body following my mind and now my body, my body wasn't. And it was really hard. I had a lot of PTSD from it and I couldn't, and, but I was such in the shock and what is, what is crazy is I saw so many professionals because I was in France when it happened. I had to travel back to Canada and I saw someone in professional after and no one ever asked me how I was doing mentally. And everyone was like, yeah, you are recovering great. Your body is great, 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 great. And then I realized many, many months after, like, wow, the I didn't even know I needed mental health then, mental health, because I was still in shock. I was having nightmares and PTSD and I was afraid of falling. I was like not understanding what was going on. And that, but I wasn't having the mental help that I needed, that I didn't know I need. And so navigating through that was really hard because I had to fight against my mind, finding ways to work through that. Um, in, in some ways, I find it's a blessing because I had to slow down. 
for the first time I had to stop. I had to lay down and just rest, which I'd never done before. And they, and I wasn't happy with it. Like, don't get me wrong. I wasn't like, yes, now I get to do nothing. It's like, what? I, I need to not be on disability for two months, not go to work. And actually at that time, like I, I quit my job and went to another job that uh, like had me, like allowed me to work because I wasn't on disability. And so I was like, no, I can't do that. I can't just rest and do nothing. What, what is that? So, <laughs> um, and at that time, I, I, I didn't have the respect for my body then that I have now, right? So it was like, it's such, I think things happen in a life so we can evolve. Um, it's just how the universe works in some ways. And this had to happen. So I had to learn those different ways um, of me of being and, and, and doing or not doing. And just understanding this whole different world that was for me that um, working through, I think a lot of it, what happened is I, this was a lot of work I had to go with shame. Because when an accident happened, I actually didn't tell my parents for like, like, I'll be honest, like I didn't tell them for four years. <laughs> wow. Um, and because I wrote a book about it, I was like, and I was ready to tell them. I just, you know, after four years, I was like, there's not never a good time to tell them about it. <laughs> um, so I was like, I wrote a book. I'm like, you know, I, I will sit down and tell them. Um, but, you know, I think the first year and two, like there was a lot of shame I had to work through. And, and you know, shame after the accident was a new shame, you know. It was shame that existed before the accident because otherwise it can't just appear from after. Um, and I, and I think a lot of people also I work with, they have sometimes when they have these behavior of, of, of the symptoms ADHD, that sometimes they have a lot of shame because they don't, they're not always able to manage them or control them. Um, and, and, but it's, it's really hard. Shame is, is, is destructive. So. Yeah. 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 Well, Thank you for telling that that beautiful story. I mean, that's a very powerful and and you know, I could just see you during the two months, right? You had to slow down. You didn't want to. Um, what was this before uh, you realizing you had uh, ADHD symptoms or afterwards? Oh uh, yeah, it was after because I. Um, well, I realized I had ADHD symptom after, or I mean, I accepted that I was like putting the word on it, right? Um, because really what I found over time is slowly how I was starting to, because I started doing the work, working through the shame, working through the trauma, working through accepting my body and the new ways um, that my body was functioning or the thing I could do or could not do because I, I can't run anymore in the same way I used to. Um, and how to come at peace with that, like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I was, I'm a different person now than I was before. Mm -hmm. And it's when I, I, I compared before, oh my gosh, I had, <laughs> I was the kind of person that had like maybe a list of like 20 things all the time and would always add something. And I had always so many things going on all the time. I was doing all the sports. I was doing all the activities. I was Anything that was going on, I will do it. I was doing all the mountains. I was doing anything. I will just do it. And, and then so I will never take a break, even when I was late for all appointments, because I was always cooking 
something like if I had 15 minutes before free to, to drive, I will not go early. I will like start a new project. And I was like always going to not going to bed until like midnight one, two, because I was busy doing all the things and having short nights and, and, and it was really so much stress all the time. I was angry behind the wheel. I was like not managing anything in my life at all. And I didn't even know because I was actually successful. I mean, in the way that I had a job and a good job, I was traveling a lot. And from an outside perspective, people would be like, cool, she has a great life. She do all the things she travel, she work. Um, but then, you know, inside it, it was not healthy because this, when you don't stop, then is you never in at peace with yourself. You don't even know. I like couldn't even communicate with people properly because I didn't never really knew how I felt most of the time um, mm -hmm. because I wasn't in touch with my body. I didn't even slow down to be in touch with that. And then what the accident all of me after is once I slowed down all that and started working through doing a lot of like inner child after and then I, I became a therapist after the accident when I, I started doing more of that mental work and found that how much um, it was needed and how much important it is to heal those parts of ourself um, and how I could help other people with that. Cause I'm like, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea that we, I could feel a different way. Yeah. And so you're forced to slow down is what I'm hearing during that time, right? And what's going through your mind? What suddenly was less important and what was more important as you were laying there? It becomes more important to connect with the things that really matters. And I know it sounds like so simple, but it is not. We, in a society where we care so much about our image and how we fit in society and how we do or say the same thing as someone else. And, and that was so important before the way I always look at this thing that would do right or wrong. I was so hang up on all of those. And, and then after now, like I not still paraglide now, um, but it's so different. Cause now if I'm like there to go parlor, I'm like, you know what? And everyone paraglide and you know, the, the guys are like, what, you know, paraglide? today is the perfect day and I'm like I'm just not feeling like it I'm like if I go inside myself right now I'm just not feeling like being attentive to what I'm doing right now I'm like be or being too distracted today because I'm thinking too much about this and no nope, I don't I don't care I don't need to do something because that's what I think I should do to be part of whatever or how people perceive me Mm -hmm. It's like to sit with it and be like, you know what? <laughs> I like, I will just, I will do it if I want to. And if I don't want to, then I'm not going to do it. And it doesn't matter what other people say, because right. we care so much about that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you're talking to somebody who grew up in Switzerland, which is the country of looking good to the outside of the world. Not the only one there's Italy, there's other countries that, 
you know, we're raised to make sure that everyone thinks we're doing great. We look great. We're orderly. We're well-dressed. We're on time, you know, all that stuff. So I had to, I'm still shaking that off. Still going to be a while, but yeah, what I'm hearing there from you is, is definitely this sense of being present to your own intuition, what, what you actually want to be doing or in the mo moment to moment. Right. And then also, yeah, not, not really letting go of that uh, need for approval of others, right? Mm -hmm. That's, mm -hmm. Those are massive, massive things. And so now you wrote a book. You wrote a book about your journey. And I just want to talk about your book for a little bit and then hear more about the work you do um, with uh, uh, people, children, families with ADHD. But yeah, tell me about the book. When did this start? Uh, what's the book called? Where can we get the book? And uh, where are you at nowadays? What have you gotten from this book writing journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the book is called Finish What You Start. <laughs> simple, simple. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which in a lot of way, um, and it's a different way because what I found, like we have to-do lists and to-do lists and a lot of time people come in like, I, I need to do, I just need another to-do list to do this. And I'm like, at the end of the day, no to-do list is going to make someone finish a to-do list. <laughs> and <laughs> like and so I'm like more, okay, so what is really going on when we don't finish what we start? What's going on when we have all those things that we're supposed to do or think we should do or want to start and not getting it done? And I, because of the nature of the work I do also hypnosis and hypnotherapy and really getting to the root of what's going on. And, and when I wrote the book, it was a, I thought it was like a need for me. I wanted to ex talk about how the, how different it was from before and after the accident, how the things I, I, I worked through that, to, that just changed totally for me to, relieve me from from just you know and basically stress is the big factor that make us being really negative but stress is not just a stress of too much to do and and not doing it well enough stress is from is from emotions or lack of boundaries or um, anything going on in our life that we're not handling is causing stress in our body and so other than just the too much to do what are you, oh, what are we not addressing that's causing stress on our mind, on our body that actually make it us impossible to focus on the thing that we want to do and finish what we start and how we handling, handling it. So for me, it was really, uh, I wrote the book at the beginning thinking I was writing about, um, you know, more how I'll cultivate, cultivate like self-compassion. Cause I think that's a lot of what, um, I, I, I ended up doing and just by that release and stress. But then I found like, you know, really going through my journey and everything I've learned and worked through the past four years and keep still working with, you know, I think we're never done the work oh, yep. until we die. That's why we live for like 80, <laughs> 90, 100 years because there's just so much work to do. <laughs> yep. Um, layers upon layers. But, um, and then with that book, um, wanted to be like bringing this awareness. That it's like, even when someone is like, oh, just put a reminder. So it's not just about putting a reminder. It's why are you not putting the reminder? Why are you not following up with that reminder? Because like, I mean, thing is you can have a calendar if you never look at it. 
then <laughs> you can fill this calendar and never look at it and you're not getting what you could be getting from having a calendar. So um, it's really much more about the underlying issues of what's going on. Yeah, I, li I like that because it just made me think of this, right? For example, I know exactly when I uh, procrastinate something, when I move it in my from my calendar from Tuesday over to Wednesday, you know, or to Thursday, it's either uh, it's too much responsibility. I don't want to take it right now. Or I believe that I'm not good enough. I can't do it or I'm going to mess up, right? Some version of that. And it would be kind of like what we're doing with ADHD. It would be so counterproductive to say, oh, why do you do that? Oh, because, well, you, you're a procrastinator. Oh, okay. And then you stop there. Oh, make a to-do list and figure out how to get it done. Whereas what I'm hearing you say, and I totally believe in that is like, no, we have to ask, well, if you, if you feel like you're not good enough to take on that much responsibility, where does that come from? Like, let's work on that from your past, right? Cause that's the real work versus, oh, you're just a procrastinator. That's a label, right? And then we go take a, a procrastinator class or we go to a coach who's really great at, at kicking our procrastinator, right? It's just not deep enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm about permanent result, not temporary fix. Because, and yeah. in, in because of the nature of the work I do too, I'm like, like I have so much compassion for people that are feeling the stress right now because I've I've been there and I feel that. And a lot of people think that because they have, like you just said, the label of procrastinator, they are they they and they start saying I am. A procrastinator instead of like i have i do procrastinate and so the being in a doing is two different thing and people when they start identifying with i am then they become an identity and it, it ends there mm -hmm. right because it's yeah. like when when somebody says i uh, i have ocd or you know i usually they say i am ocd I always say, how come? And they go, well, because I have OCD. So well, that, does, that doesn't compute. You can't be OCD because you have OCD. It's a label we made up, but it's a, there's symptoms you have. How come? Why are you be behaving that way, right? And then you start, that's where the work starts. That's not even where it ends. You start there, right? Which is, sounds like what you did, not just with your book, but also your work. Is that how that sort of, uh, translated over or uh, transitioned over from your book to your to your hypnosis uh, practice or hypnotherapy practice? Um, yeah, so I I've been hypnotherapist for a few years now, and and a lot of the example are even in there because I have some some stories too. As as I go in the deeper part of like why are you not going to bed at a time you want to go to bed, and I share some stories. Um, of of people I've worked with and how we actually got that information from them and what was really going on with them yeah. um, in that way because of, of, of the clients I've worked with and really having this understanding that, oh, you know, if you actually yeah. don't stop to ask yourself why, like, you know, the days, I mean, having ADHD doesn't, it feels like it, it not really disappear completely because the days that I, sometimes I, I'm like, finding myself <laughs> going to the kitchen, starting something for two seconds and then going there, starting this other thing for three, four seconds. Those days I'm like, wait, wait a minute. What am I doing? I'm like, what is going on? And in that moment I sit, I'm like, what am I doing? Oh, 
some sometimes you know just tired or need rest and I didn't sleep and all of a something or sometimes it's something on my mind going on and then because I use I use like those behavior and symptoms now to like inform myself I'm like oh wait 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 I'm doing this right now what is going on that I'm like not really having in my conscious mind but like more in my subconscious mind and then doing the work like that that like I, I have some stuff in the book to to help with that and um yeah and actually if for readers readers listener right now if they want to read the book i i have right now i'm giving it away for free for people listening to this podcast and um and it's called you can go my the website adhdbookgiveaway.com nice i like that simple adhdbookgiveaway.com for our listener that's where you can find finish what you start Maggie Ull's book, which I'm excited to get my own free copy, <laughs> of course. Um, but so let's talk a little bit about your, your work. So first of all, congratulations on finishing a book because you finished what you started, right? So you're walking the talk, which I think is awesome. And I want to know a little bit of how, how does your work, how have you seen your work as a hypnotherapist affect people or children or families with ADHD? Um, the, the thing that I've seen that work so good is I, I teach a self-hypnosis. Um, so I work mostly with adults and I teach them when I teach them self-hypnosis, it's a little different than just meditation. Um, because it's, we focus on something with self-hypnosis and it's what happened for a lot of people, which I think is amazing. Uh, they are the first time they experience it. They're like, whoa, like for the first time they feel relaxed. They feel like their body's sinking in, but just feeling relaxed in because they have, they used to be always doing this something and not usually arbitrated to relax that much and always be doing something. Um, for the first time, what happened is we, they access a part of their brain that actually in their subconscious mind, because that's what gnosis really do. Um, the part of the brain that is just extensive that is really who they are and what they want and desire and the subconscious mind is a bit more of a personality where when you are in your conscious mind it's everything you perceive you know but so when you sometimes when you have ADHD like you know what you talk earlier with the tabs is you're always analyzing everything always so busy and then you have your critical factor which judge judge and criticize and see if it fits with the subconscious mind. So the brain is just so busy all the time. And then when they get into the state of self-hypnosis, then they don't have that, that chatter, that, that scattered feeling scattered brain. And, and so they can actually relax. And when they access that, they, it's like night and day. It, it, it's a lot of people realize that actually it's possible for them to relax because they never experienced that. And then I teach them that because I'm also, like I said, I'm for permanent technique and not like temporary, uh, temporary results. So I'm like, I teach them that so they can use that and learn how to do that on their own so they can recreate that space and heal through, through that with that. Yeah. That's beautiful. And that also, again, goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the nervous system, right? With the body keeps the score or uh, the polyvagal theory is if your nervous system is not in rest mode and calm, well, then 
you can't focus. You can't make, say, algebra your priority when you're processing a divorce and alcoholic father at home. How are you supposed to do algebra? Literally, the brain can't. The prefrontal cortex can only do one thing at a at a time to, to simple oversimplifying it, but literally that's what we're seeing with kids, right? So again, very important to calm down so that we can be with, you know, like you said, awaken the subconscious, right? That's where the change, the real change gets made, uh, I would imagine, right? In the behavior. Mm -hmm. And the behavior patterns, and it's kind of like reprogramming some of the program that we installed when we were a little child. Like every time that you did something that someone criticized you, then it becomes, and that's how a lot of people self-criticize because at some point, an aunt or an uncle, someone in family criticized yeah. themselves or you, and then it becomes your patterns, like you, you put a meaning to what's happening in a belief with that. And, but then, you know, what you learn when you were a child is mostly not serving you when you're an adult to have this kind of thought. And so when you do the work in the subconscious mind, it's just, you access that part, that belief directly. So if you want to make change, it's just so much more, so much more faster, so much faster with, when you you directly in that part of the brain than just doing consciously trying to do the change. I mean, I love it. And I'm so just, I don't know what the right word is, perplexed flabbergasted because I just thought of this um, quote that one of our experts, Bruce Lipton, who's a biologist, developmental biologist, he said, ADHD is not, um, you know, the issue isn't the hardware, meaning the brain, the issue is the programming, what goes in, right? What creates the tape? Like you were saying, we've been programmed with a certain tape and that influences our behavior out in the world, right? Our actions. And unless we change that tape, we're going to keep getting the same behaviors. But if no one asks why the behaviors are there and how they got there, if we just say the behaviors are wrong, they don't work for this world, this school system, this family, let's medicate or let's label them as the problem, then we're ignoring pretty much the entire work you're doing, which is going under underneath and really trying to change the tape, which I think is the most important thing, right? You can have a bullhorn uh, and a bullhorn is a powerful tool, but it's what you're saying out, what you're letting out through the bullhorn out into the world, right? The dialogue that's on that tape is what matters, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty crazy, pretty crazy how even, you know, the advertising industry knows exactly that that works. That's why we keep hearing the same song or the same jingle or slogan 200 times because it stays in your, if anything, conscious, but subconscious, you know, like my, my kids, sometimes we don't watch commercials, but if they ever run across a commercial on YouTube and they hear it more than four or five times, they will tell me about it at some point because it's there. Right. And so like, you know, the advertising industry knows this, but the psychiatrists and psychologists go, yeah, not really, not really that important. It's not really the couldn't really cause any behaviors or couldn't really program, you know, it, it's mind blowing that we think that way, that we separate, like in your case, the body from, right. Nobody asked you how you're doing mentally. Everyone's like, oh, you're recovering physically. You're good to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, and you know, and what you just said, I think what's important, which is interesting um, that some psychiatrists would say that because, you know, the brain doesn't make a difference between what's real and what's not real when you have image. So (laughs) when you're watching TV, um, it doesn't make a difference if it's real or not. So if you're watching something that is really sad and you, you start crying, like, you know, it's just TV somehow it's still generated emotions. Yeah, it's you have emotion for something that's not real. So that's what TV commercials are so effective. And they are so expensive, too, because they work. Because a little child, when they're in that phase of like, they have a, a kind of a blank slate in some ways. And so everything they're learning in like the seven to 12 years old, it's just new information that's getting implemented permanently into the brain. Absolutely. And I think when we say that, you know, when we try to shield our children from social media, from TV commercials, the news, A, I think that's smart because somehow subconsciously, no pun intended, we know that that's programming. And I'm aware that I want to have some form of control. I think it's an illusion to have 100% control over what goes into your child's mind. It's impossible. You would drive yourself nuts living that way. But I think uh, we try to have, I try to have at least some form of control to say, you know, we don't watch commercials. We don't watch the news. We don't do commercials on YouTube. You know, we pay extra, so there's no commercials and we just can't monitor all the YouTube content, but we constantly have conversation about what is appropriate, what is not, you know, there's only so much we can do, but I think it's so important because any blank slate, AKA baby born today into this world is born into a dialogue of programming and it will get programmed that way. Unless that human being is shielded to an extreme degree, it will become of this world, right? That's why we're all kind of in it. We're all like, ah, what do we do? Ooh, ooh, you know, cause we all have the same similar programming coming at us. But to just ignore the fact that the brain develops in relationship with the environment, which a lot of psychologists do when it comes to mental disorders, it's nuts. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I admire what you do. I admire the work you do. And I acknowledge you for working with uh, people with, you know, with ADHD and and families. And it, it makes a huge difference, right? Any human being you can help to reprogram sort of negative dialogue that doesn't work for them is a more effective human being out there or more productive, positive, whatever you want to call it. So I acknowledge you for, uh, essentially changing your career to make a difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I love this work. I love, I'm amazed of <laughs> the uh, capacity and ability as human beings. And I mean, just so for, from what you just said, I think as as parents, when when you start like understanding all those layers, then we also start hyper focusing on like, oh, what should I say or not say? But you know, in some ways, I think it's also understanding that it just it's just gonna happen that as an adult, everyone has a need for healing and do the work. It's just part of the human in life like in some ways it's just it's kind of why we're here it's like we have to work through those things we program what serve us now because what when we were young it was just another time too and it's outdated so it's just part of like life which is you your children will have to work through their own stuff and that's okay whatever like you can't you won't break them they will just have to learn from it and you know it's just an experience it's just part of life 
Absolutely. I agree. And, and that brought up another interesting thought, which is, you know, um, if we were to really allow our children to be seen, right, if we were to really acknowledge that there was trauma in their lives, right, for them, for most of them, not saying all of them that are what I call misdiagnosed with ADHD had trauma, sometimes it's physical trauma, right, you have a concussion in your head, sometimes it's actually physiologically something that happens. But for the most part, from my own research of seven years, it's like 85% plus traumatic events. And if we were to acknowledge them at least, and us parents do the work, right? Like you and I were digging deep to draw a line in the sand so that that trauma doesn't get passed on to our children and so forth, right? If we at least did that, I think we would sort of tap into almost a bigger picture spiritual vision of, oh, trauma is actually here for us to grow from, not to ignore it and pop a pill, and have the right behavior so we fit into society. No, if we actually look at the trauma and we see it for the value it brings and we, we transform past it, who could we become as a society, right? I mean, that's just a large question. <laughs> <laughs> superpower. We'd be super powerful. Mm. Yeah. I think we have only seen 10% or 8% of the superpower we are. Yeah. You know, so, uh, well, I love this conversation, Maggie. I, we, we may do a follow-up in the future when you write your second book. <laughs> Let's see. It'll be called first one is finish what you start. The next one will be just get it done, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or what are you doing next? Come on. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate our conversation and, uh, thank you for for being uh, open and available to do this. And I just want to ask you one last question, which is, is there anything that you would like parents of children that were diagnosed with ADHD, such as like your sister, what would you like them to know about their children? Let them express their emotions. And that if as a parent, you we do something wrong, like we say something wrong and we realize, then we, have to go and apologize because children there's a lot of things when parents have anger they don't understand and even we think like oh you go in the corner and you're going to learn from a lesson from working with adults for years now most of the time we go back to those events and those those they're like i i don't know my parents is angry i don't know why and the parents think the child know but the child doesn't so um i think it's important to let the child have emotion to talk about emotion to put names on emotions and just from there allowing them to feel them and accept them and that's going to make a big difference for them as they grow mm, beautiful i love that i love that i would definitely agree with the emotion you know emotions are so important to be expressed and felt and processed and move through them instead of suppress make wrong try to fix it right? Uh, we would have a different world, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. Beautiful, Maggie. Well, it's been a pleasure. And I'm going to, um, again, I'm going to have the links uh, to your work, your website, where people can contact you to your free book. Thank you for making that available to people. Uh, I'm going to have that in the show notes. That's where we can find you and your work. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for doing the work you're doing out in the world. Well, thank you for having me. That was a pleasure. It was mine. <laughs>